Okay, Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 6. The first three verses will talk about repentance and the rest of the chapter 4 to 11 about their sin and the need to punish them for their sin. Hosea 6 verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revise, revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What should I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. When I restore the fortunes of my people. Amen. At the end of the last chapter in verse 15, we noted last time that he says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. We spoke of that verse as a verse acknowledging repentance that there would be a time when they were humiliated, humbled because of their sins and the consequences of their sins, the punishment of their sins, and then they would turn to God in repentance and they would seek Him. But first, the affliction or the punishment for their sins has to take place. Well, then in chapter 6, 1 to 3, we have essentially their prayer of repentance. We have their prayer of repentance. In this prayer of repentance, we will see that they have the gospel spoken on their lips. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their lips. How shall we understand that? Look at verse 1 first. Come, let us return to the Lord. This word come and let us, this is known as a cohortative. Cohortative, that is, as a group, those who are like-minded, they say to one another, let's do this together. Let's do this together. Let's repent together. We realize what has happened. We realize who we are. We, we realize the consequences or the punishment of our sin. We need to turn to God. They call on one another to repent. The word return is our word repent. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it is this word return. At other times, it's the word 
repent. This is the word that is commonly, more commonly in the New Testament, the word repent. We do have the word return in the New Testament, also meaning repent. In 1 Peter 2, 25, um, we have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Returned is used there by Peter the Apostle, 1 Peter 2, 25. To return... In this context, in a theological, spiritual context, means to repent. Of course, if we're talking about going from one city to another city and then going back home, the Bible would say return. He returned to his hometown or something. That's how the word is used. They acknowledge their need to repent, which is essential in any true conversion. The need to repent of sin. And when they do repent, they have to turn to God, to the Lord, the true God, Yahweh or Jehovah here in verse 1. They can't just go to any God. They have to go to the true and living God, to the Lord. They also acknowledge in verse 1 that God is the one who has afflicted them. They know that their circumstances, their plight, their afflictions are there because God has done it. God has humbled them, humiliated them, and brought about the punishment that they deserve. Yes, it may happen because of their foolish and evil choices. Yes, it may happen because of other people. Yes, it may happen because of accidents or nature. But ultimately, everything that happens to us comes from God himself, which they acknowledge. He, God, the Lord, has torn us. But the one who has torn and wounded is the same one who can heal and bandage. They acknowledge that truth too. The one who breaks is also the one who restores. Verse 2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. The reviving... The revival comes from God. The life comes from God. The ability to raise up comes from God. It all comes from Him. He will revive. He will raise us up that we may live. God has a purpose to live before Him in true life, in eternal life, before Him. It says two days on the third day. It also says that we may live before him in his presence. How is it that the people are going to be revived and raised up on the third day? Why do they use this phraseology, two days, third day? Why do they do so? Because they know, believing in the gospel of Christ, they know that when Christ dies... They die when they believe in him. And when Christ is raised from the dead, they are also raised from the dead because they believe in him, believe in Christ. They know that. They're talking about their unity with Christ, their oneness with Christ. They identify with Christ. Christ died, and when they put their faith in him, what he did on the cross is for their benefit, 
what he did on the cross and by his resurrection is for their benefit. They fully understand it. They're confessing it with their own lips. They're not talking about anything else. It doesn't make any sense to make the two days and the three days mean anything else because it doesn't take two or three days for God to convert everybody. That's not how he works. But if we're talking in relation to the gospel of Christ, we understand what this prayer is. We understand that it is identification, unification, unity with Christ. For example, Romans 4, Romans 4, 23 to 25. Romans 4, 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Why was he delivered up and raised? For us, it says, our transgressions, our justification. Then look at Romans 6. Romans 6, this language of unity with Jesus' death and resurrection. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Well, when did we die to sin? Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hosea 6.2 is basically like Romans 6, 1 to 11. That's what's happening there. Also, in this passage, this is one of a few Old Testament passages that predict resurrection on the third day, the resurrection of Christ on the third day. Another example would be Psalm 16, 9 to 11, where it prophesies that Christ will not see corruption or will not see decay. Psalm 16, 9. Psalm 16, 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. This is Christ speaking in Psalm 16, 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In verse 10, he is clearly speaking to the Father. The Son is speaking to the Father. Christ is speaking to his Father, God the Father. This passage is quoted in Acts chapter 2, 25 to 28, where the Apostle Peter says, David was not talking about himself, but David was writing the words of Christ. This is a prophecy of Christ's death and resurrection. If the body of Christ does not undergo decay, it means he has to be raised on the third day because the decay typically starts on the fourth day, not the first, second, and third days. Typically on the fourth day. Acts 2, 25, actually go 2.25 to 36, where the apostle quotes this and a couple of other texts. And in reference to what David predicted or prophesied, and he says explicitly, David wasn't talking about himself. David was talking about Christ. In Acts 16, Psalm 110. All right, so... This is one of the other Old Testament passages that predict his resurrection on the third day. If you'd like to see one more, it would be Jonah. Jonah 1.17, where Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the large fish or the, the great fish. And this, Jesus says, has reference to himself. Why was Jonah there three days and three nights as a pre figurement of Christ, as an illustration of Christ. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. That's where Jesus says, Jonah prefigured him or predicted what would happen to Christ himself. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Job 14, where he talks about the day of resurrection. Yes, he believed in resurrection. Hosea 6 now, verse 3. After we have been identified with Christ, we are united to Christ, what then is there for us? Can we just have a good old time? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Shall we eat and drink and um, stand up to play? as the sons of Israel did in Exodus 32. What is there for us? Verse 3 tells us. Hosea 6.3. So let us know. Remember, this is the repentant one still speaking. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. It's necessary once they have come into initial knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, and save from their sins, it's necessary for them to press on to know the Lord. It takes work. It takes striving. It takes a struggle against sin. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I possibly might be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. We must suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, suffering hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. 
it is necessary to wage war now. And in this war, we must know the Lord. We must know our commander-in-chief. We must know the captain of the hosts of the Lord in order to carry out our warfare, to carry out successful warfare. And how do we know him? Through his word. We know him through his word. Hosea 8, Hosea 8 and verse 12. 8, 12. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. That describes people in unbelief, but people who believe in the gospel, they don't regard the law of God as a strange thing, but as a familiar thing, something that they know intimately. And who is the Lord, Hosea 6.3? His going forth is as certain as the dawn. We know, we have confidence that the dawn will occur the next day, right? We have that certainty. God is that certain and even more certain than that. Of course, when the Bible uses comparisons, when, they use, when the Bible uses analogies, it's even more eternally and infinitely more true of God. But the comparison to the dawn, just as we know the sun will rise the next day, that's how confident we can be of our faith in Christ. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. The spring rain is refreshment. The spring rain is necessary for the crops to grow. It's necessary to have an abundant summer harvest. God is this way to his people. He rains on us in a time of refreshment, necessary refreshment, so that we produce abundant fruit. He supplies what we need. He doesn't keep us parched so that there's drought and famine. Not for the Christian. We have abundant waters. Christ and His Holy Spirit dwell in us. John chapters 4 and 6. However, though He was speaking of the elect, the redeemed, in verses 1 to 3, now He's addressing the wicked, the unrepentant wicked. Here, 4 to 11. What's their uh, situation, or what is their plight. Verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Ephraim is the northern kingdom because Ephraim is the largest tribe, so it becomes a synonym of Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And Hosea addresses both because God is exasperated with both, the north and the south. What shall I do with you? What else was there for God to do to help them? He gave them his word. He gave them his prophets. He gave them the patriarchs. He gave them the promises of Christ. He gave them the covenants. He gave them the temple. 
He gave them the promise of protection. He gave them so much. Promise of uh, food and clothing. Everything they had. The nations did not have the, the word of life. They had the word of life. Right? What else did God have to do? He's explaining that He provided abundantly and He provided incessantly. Abundantly, they had everything they needed to the full. But also constantly, incessantly, time and time again, He told them the same again and again. He would rephrase the same points again and again, making sure they understood, leaving no precept that was lacking, right? He said in 8.12, Hosea 8.12, 10,000 precepts of my law. How else do you want me to explain it before you repent, before you believe? How else do you want me to explain it? How many times must I explain it? What else must I do? How are they described? Their loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. By a morning cloud, he means uh, uh, an isolated morning cloud, but when the summer sun rises, it quickly dissipates that cloud, quickly. And then the morning dew goes away early. It doesn't stay all day long on the ground or on the grass or on the crops. It goes away early. That's how their faith was. They had temporary faith, temporary allegiance, temporary repentance, but nothing that lasted. Does this not remind us of the parable of the sower? The parable of the sower is the same. This is the typical response of people who hear the word. Luke 8, Luke 8, 4 to 15. Luke 8, 4 to 15. And when a great multitude were coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And other seed fell on the rocky soil and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Another seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Another seed fell into the good ground and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. 
bear fruit with perseverance. Their heart is good. They hold fast to it, to the word. It's good and honest. They bear fruit with perseverance. But not the wicked. Whatever was given to them goes away early. Hosea 6.5. 6.5. Therefore, I have hewn them in, the, in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. This judgment has come on them from the words of the prophets. The scriptures are described as a sword. And that's what he means when he says, I have hewn them in pieces. I have cut them in pieces. I've chopped them up by the sword of the prophets. What is the sword of the prophets? The sword of the prophets is the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6, 17, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. Also, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, 4, 12, 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is a living and is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees it all and he uses his word as a two-edged sword. His word is a two-edged sword. That means it will slay the wicked. It will chop them up in pieces. God's word. The judgments are like the light that goes forth. The word of God will shine brightly over the dark and secret sins of the people. That's how God's judgment is. It will shine the light on hidden sins. People think their hidden sins will not be held accountable, but they will be. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 Watching the evil and the good. 2 Chronicles 16.7 For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro. Obviously, these are analogies of God's omniscience. He knows everything, everywhere. And he will shine the light on sin. Verse 6, Hosea 6, 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wants loyalty or faithfulness or dedication or as Christ said in Luke 8.15, an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. He wants this kind of loyalty, but this loyalty is not 
absent of the true knowledge of God. We need the true knowledge of God. Hosea says that in Hosea 4.1. There is no faithfulness or kindness or loyalty, the word loyalty, or knowledge of God in the land. 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This knowledge of God is necessary. This knowledge of God accompanied by faithfulness or loyalty is what Hosea is preaching. And he says he wants that and not the sacrifice, not the burnt offerings, rather than. Christ our Lord quoted this passage in Matthew, Matthew 9, 13. He quoted this because his opponents didn't understand this point. But they should have understood it. Hosea preached it. Isaiah preached it. Jeremiah preached it. Amos preached it. Um, Isaiah 1, 1, 10 to 17. Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15. Hosea, I mean, uh, Amos, Amos 5, 21 to 24. They all preached it. But let's go to one other example. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 14 to 17. Psalm 51, 14 to 17. 51, 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Let's also read 18 and 19. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. He first wants us to have a right heart then what we do to worship him is acceptable. But if our heart isn't right, then our worship of him is wrong. Repent, therefore, and have a right heart, and then come to worship. It should not have been new news to them. It shouldn't have been that. Moses and all the rest of the prophets, they preached this very truth. Hosea 6, 7. Having expressed this, having preached this, they don't behave this way. He tells them openly and plainly, but they don't live that way. Verse 7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. He compares them to Adam. Likely this is the best translation, though your footnotes and study Bibles may differ on this point. It's best to take this as Adam. And there are allusions to Adam's sin in the, in the Old Testament. There are allusions to it, such as Job 31, 33. Job 31, 33. It says there, Have I covered my transgressions like Adam, 
By hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Have I covered my transgressions like Adam? Didn't Adam cover himself with fig leaves? And it says, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. He was hiding his shame, his awareness of his sin and shame that resulted in that Genesis chapter 3. He was covering or hiding it by hiding among the trees and covering himself with fig leaves. But he couldn't hide from God. And another allusion to this sin is Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28, 13. 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. If we conceal them, we will not prosper. It's necessary, therefore, to confess and forsake. And we do know that Adam concealed his transgression. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Ecclesiastes 7.29. One more allusion to Adam. 7.29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Many devices means many devious ways to transgress. And he says he made men upright. How did he make us all upright? In Adam, before Adam sinned, because we are all in Adam. We were there when he sinned in terms of representation. He was there in our place. He made us all upright, but we all, just like Adam, treacherously departed from our God. Treachery. Treachery is a biblical way to refer to breaking the covenant with God as though we were married to God. Breaking the covenant with God as though we were married to Him. He as our husband, Christ as our head, and we the wife or the bride. Malachi, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. 214. We'll read 214 to 16. 214 to 16. In reference to treachery and marriage and covenant. 214. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. We all, in Adam, we depart. We treacherously depart from God. Because God he, loves everybody. I in, hate divorcing Him. 
Yes, here it says, I hate him. Yes. God hates him who divorces in Malachi 2.16. Contrary to the, the fickle uh, figments that people have that God loves everyone at all times. That's false. Hosea 6.8, what did they do? He illustrates their sins. Hosea 6.8, Gilead is a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. They have, surely they have committed crime. Gilead was a prominent place, a region, and even a city in the eastern part of the Jordan region. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh dwelt there. They had three cities of refuge for the manslayer in case there was accidental killing. They had three cities on that side and three on the western side. However, here he's not talking about manslaughter, accidental killing. He's talking about murder. Verse 9, murder. He's talking about intentional, malicious, hateful taking of another human's life. That's what he's talking about. Gilead, a place of abundance. Why would a place of abundance need to murder anybody? They have everything. They have lots of wealth. They, w- they wouldn't need to do anything like that, yet they do. A city that's supposed to be a model city, a central city in that e- eastern region of the Jordan, has become a bloody city. They are murdering people, likely murdering young and old and others who are helpless along the road. Because it says right there in verse 9, as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. That is on the road or path to Shechem. They have murderers. The common people are murderers, and even the priests are murderers. The religious men are murderers. Murdering young and old alike, and everyone in between. The young, such as offering their children on altars, and the old being vulnerable, such as the widows, murdering the widows in order to take or seize their properties, and those between who are traveling. We know, for example, from Luke 10, that there was a band of robbers on the road, right? From Jerusalem to Jericho. And the priests and the Levite, the priest and the Levite did not help that man. The Samaritan did. The Samaritan did. But the Levite and the priest did not. Same way right here. The priests who should know better, they should have some conscience, not only from natural law, the law written in the heart, but also because of the biblical law that they teach and preach to the people. They should have known better not to do that but they had bloody hands also. Crimes against God and one another. Verse 10, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. In 10, he addresses Israel and he says he sees something horrible, something harlotrous, 
something defiled. He's talking again about idolatry in terms of adultery and prostitution. He's talking about idolatry in terms of prostitution and adultery, as we saw in the early chapters, especially, well, yes, all the chapters. He started out that way in chapters 1 and 2, and then he continues that way throughout this book and prophecy. They're polluted. It's horrible. It's detestable. Verse 11, Also Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. To Judah, also there is a punishment coming. This harvest is likely a harvest that is full of judgment because the tree doesn't bear any fruit. If the tree doesn't bear any fruit, what will happen to that tree? It'll be torn down, broken down, chopped down, and thrown into the fire. Luke 3, Luke 3, 9. Luke 3 and verse 9. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's cut down and thrown into the fire. John 15. John 15 and verse 6. 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Christ there in John 15, 6 speaks of those who are associated with him, naming him, claiming him, but not really in him because they don't bear fruit. If they don't bear fruit, they don't belong to him. Verse 8 says, John 15, 8, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. They don't bear fruit. Therefore, when the harvest comes, it's going to be among the trees, the bushes, and the rest, the, the chaff of the wheat that's all burned up. Verse 11 Judah, that follows the wicked example of Israel, will also be punished, but he'll make a distinction. He will restore the fortunes of his people. When I restore the fortunes of my people. The Bible is constantly contrasting, as we just saw in our chapter, verses 1 to 3 with 4 to 11. It's always contrasting so that we distinctly understand the difference between good and evil, righteousness and wickedness, God and Satan. It's always contrasting. And here he does the same. He says, when he punishes wicked Judah, he will redeem repentant Judah. He's going to restore their fortunes. Like the ones in verses 1 to 3, or like the ones in 5.15. He compares and contrasts. And even just like in Romans 9. Romans 9, do we not have a contrast? We have a contrast. Romans 9, 19. 
Romans 9, 19 to 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Romans 9.20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy in the same passage, and all coming from a common source, the clay, one lump. Just like with Judah, Judah was one nation, but in that one nation, the vast majority is harvested for destruction, for the fire, and then the remnant, the minority, they are the redeemed. Their fortunes are restored. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.